Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to another edition of the Love the Problem podcast. This one is a very special edition, as both James and I were, were recently in Helsinki for the Arctic 15 conference. And we had the opportunity to sit down with a couple of different people working on different problems. Each of them is going to get a, a small segment each. There's not enough time to do once. So just in general, uh, you'll, you'll learn more about each of them. But we'd like to thank Maria from Cora, Hannah from Planet Blue, Posse from Solar Foods, and Gemma from Disrupt, as they are the, the various guests on the show. Uh, as always, please like, comment, let, let us know what, what you like about us. Let us know what we're doing really poorly. And certainly, if, if you like any of these companies and you want to connect with them, feel free to reach out to us or, or reach out to them directly. Uh, so, hi everybody. Uh, we're here in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, I'm with uh, Pasi Vainika, who's uh, the right, CEO of Solar Foods. CEO of Solar Foods. He's going to talk to us about uh, the problem they're solving with Solar Foods. Um, and I just want to jump right into it. So, uh, Pasi, can you t- tell us a little bit about yourself, your background? How did you get into to this problem? My background is yeah. actually in uh, energy engineering, and uh, all of us in the company um, today we we are former researchers in from our National Research Institute. Um, uh, I used to be in the lead of uh, the single largest renewable energy research what we've had uh, in the country, called Neo Carbon Energy, and um, uh, there we we found out that if you want to make um, emission-free world and future. We need to stop burning, and uh, carbon neutral electricity will be the new primary energy. 80% of the global energy is based on burning fossils, but that needs to be stopped fundamentally and replace that with uh, carbon neutral electricity. Whether it's renewables or um, uh, renewables or nuclear, it's, it's your pick. So electrifying things is, is the thing for the for the energy system: electric vehicles, heating, cooling, industrial processes, and so on. And the second finding was. Um, that if we leave fossil carbon in the ground, we need to start uh, using actually CO2 as a source of carbon, which is actually quite convenient source of carbon. Um, and we can make make fuels out of it. We had a pilot plant at the research institute. Uh, I'm doing fuels from air. Um, uh, but then I learned that um, even if we would all do all that, you know, reinvest the energy system and energy infrastructure, it's not actually good enough to fulfill the Paris Climate Accord to to reach into 1.52 degrees. Uh, but about one up to one quarter of the carbon uh, carbon footprint to human action is due to what we eat. Um, and uh, then with this his background, it's easy to understand that we we start to look solutions to how to produce edible calories possibly proteins uh, from electricity and carbon dioxide. And then my colleague, Juha-Pekka Pitkanen at the Research Institute, uh, had a solution technically that actually there are organisms that eat um, hydrogen that you can make with electricity and, uh, and carbon dioxide and grow, and they are a perfect protein source. So that that's kind of how we came up to with the, the, the company and the idea to, to, to go for food. Interesting. I'm I'm kind of really curious about the shift. How how did you go sort of, or or how did you find the transition from going from like a, an energy engineer into I mean this is very much sort of biochemistry, biofermentation. It's 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 completely different, uh, scientific uh, discipline. How how did you find that transition? I mean that's kind of a, I, I like your your logic, and I, I actually find this this topic very important as well. But but that that seems like an interesting jump to make uh, based on your background and. Can you go, go yeah, I think that you're on the, on the spot there in terms of that. Um, 
um, new things seems to emerge uh, from the intersections of disciplines, scientific disciplines, and that, that's what we are trying to materialize here. Um, in the past, I've been part of, of, of multidisciplinary teams at the Research Institute. It's one of the advantages of, of having these institutes that you have, you can actually combine teams to achieve tasks and, mm -hmm. and they have different uh, skills. But that's uh, classically what you need also in the startup, right? Yeah, you, yeah, need, yeah. you need complementary skills. Um, and that's the, I would say, uh, advantage of, of Solar Foods also that we are a multidisciplinary team, we understand the field and the fundamentals uh, on a very on the highest level kind of what's the problem uh, and, and and we're trying to you know walking it down you know um, um, to to um, make a very focused solution and business model and the pro product for for the company and, and for that you need you know complementary skills uh, and um, we've been able to discuss with each other and uh, it, it seems to work well. Um, it, I would say it's, it's very much uh, advantage that you, if you can build teams like that. And for me it was, um, it was very interesting, mm -hmm. uh, challenging in a very positive way. Uh, to learn new things and have uh, find new applications and, and kind of you know, go into unexplored uh, waters. Aiden, can you just can you go in a little bit more detail of, of you know what what is this sort of multidisciplinary team that you've you brought together around solar foods on I don't know as deep or, or shallow as you want to go, but but give a little bit more color or flavor to, yeah, to, to think, the makeup of your team. I could name three. Uh, one is that. Um, um, we are converting um, electricity into edible calories and, and protein, amino acids. And uh, the world has changed completely in the energy sector in the past five years, five years only. So if you go five years back, people were almost laughing at solar PV. They were laughing at, at uh, electric vehicles as a mainstream solution uh, and, and considering them very expensive. But, but uh, since then we found out that actually solar PV uh, has become the cheapest source of power on the planet in, in the Sun Belt, in the Nordics, uh, where we're doing this now at, at this moment, uh, the cheapest source of power is wind power. And that, that wasn't really true five years ago. So that's one thing that you need to observe and extrapolate from the energy sector. Okay, something's happening around electricity and you can start actually to see electricity as a raw material. It's quite unlikely for a deep uh, food scientist to kind of perhaps think of this um, because he or she is busy with, with what, what he or she is doing around food. Um, so that, that's one takeaway. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, then bioprocess engineering, uh, our CTO Juha Pekka is, is, uh, is really, really good in that. Um, and uh, he was able to kind of uh, a bit stress the limits of, uh, of, um, of this technology and extrapolate a bit, you know, what, what can be done out of this. And when you, when you complement these together, actually you have a solid justification in terms of, of the, the use of energy and how it works, but also a, a solid uh, bioprocess engineering solution, technically how you can actually make those calories. Then we had also in the founders, um, people who were um, previously working, also entrepreneurs, but previously, uh, unlike myself, 
um, uh, and they've done um, things around uh, venture capital. So they knew that that you know how you could what could be the business model and how you set up the case and actually uh, get the financing uh, for for the company. Um, so with this business and two kind of technological baskets, when we integrate these, it, it was quite quick actually to turn around uh, to to come up with the company and fa- actually found it. Great, and so so I guess from this point, could you just maybe tell tell the audience a little bit about the actual solution? What what is it you're actually creating? So so what food is being created from straight from electricity and and, and whatnot? What we are doing technically is is gas fermentation. So um, people know usually how beer wine is made. You have a sugarous liquid into which you put specific yeast that grows and, uh, and generates alcohol uh, to, to the liquid um, by using sugar from, for example, grapefruits um, as a source of carbon and energy. Instead of that, our microbe, that is kind of our magic, what it is, naturally occurring in every case, um, is such kind of uh, microbe that it can actually use hydrogen and CO2 that we introduce in, into the liquid as small bubbles uh, as a source of carbon and energy. And this is the very fundamental and strategic way or point where uh, the disconnection from agriculture happens. Uh, and uh, these ingredients plus, of course, nitrogen and a bit of inorganics that all living forms need uh, in the liquid, um, and then uh, the cells uh, grow and multiply. And uh, then you set, take the liquid out and, uh, and uh, dry it and you end up with a powder. And, and what would you use? I mean, I'm sure some people out there don't, don't know, what would you use this powder for? Uh, what sort of the content? What, what what would be what would it be good for? We tend to think uh, three things. First is that you use it as a protein ingredient in existing foods. It can be in bread, pasta, shakes, or plant-based yogurts, uh, or or similar as uh, as an ingredient. Then you can imagine uh, the Beyond Meats and Impossibles, um, plant-based meat alternatives that actually you, they have the texture of kind of resembling meat, but in addition to that, they also use protein ingredients, pea protein um, and, and soy protein, for example, for, for the, in the case of the two mentioned. Um, and uh, we could be also a protein ingredient there, so plant-based meat alternatives. And if you combine these two, then you already could have kind of a uh, ready meal lasagna. We can be a protein in the in the in the pasta pasta there, or in the tomato sauce, or 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 in the plant-based meat alternative, which which is the meat there in the lasagna. So there you are. And the third one is um, cultured meat. So if uh, cultured meat would be the thing to to do in the future, it would uh, break through. Um, then uh, they would also need in the in the growing medium, uh, in addition to sugars, uh, many other things, um, amino acids, uh, mainly sugars and amino acids. Uh, and we actually could be a source of amino acids for, for the growing medium. And if you think of these three existing foodstuffs, uh, uh, plant-based meat alternatives and, and uh, cultured meat, uh, you could also think this in a way that not just producing a um, 
um, a protein ingredient powder, but we can provide in a, in a quite diverse way this connection from agriculture for all these kinds of uh, foods and solutions. Interesting. Okay. So, but right now, your your more thought is is to have this as an ingredient into other things and not to build out a a protein. I don't know. Um, food by itself let's say it's a, in in every case it is ingredients so the texture okay. we are not focusing on um, it is possible it might be even to some extent likely that we would do a consumer uh, product at some point ourselves uh, but then uh, we have not really uh, decided and planned that what what would be this product so it's kind of a chicken breast kind of thing or, or what what does it you know uh, resemble let's see and then I, uh, going in a slightly different direction I, I do give a lot of talks about sort of culture meter lab meat and one of the things that that my personal belief is around the topic is is that essentially long term the primary input is going to essentially be electricity and the the cost of electricity is going to plummet essentially close to zero in, in my opinion uh, with with renewables uh, which will help bring down the cost of of this cultured meat is 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 it sort of a similar type of process with what you guys have that sort of long term the primary input is going to be electricity and sort of as the cost of electricity decreases the the cost of producing this is going to decrease as well or is it I don't know. exactly exactly yeah. if you if you want to the cost is one so the if you go back five years, uh, five years or ten years, uh, the the um, there was kind of a consensus amongst uh, energy uh, consultants, let's put it this way, and governments that the price of electricity is going up because we are continue burning, we use carbon capture storage technologies, and it increases the, the cost of generation. But it went the just the opposite way. And uh, and it will be the question that uh, how can you actually uh, start to use this raw material? You're you're right there. Um, so that's one. It's it's available possibly in, in a cost efficient manner. And the second thing is that if you want uh, to improve the uh, environmental performance, then the concepts of plant photosynthesis and animal needs to be dealt with. Uh, and that you can skip with electrified cultured meat or 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 the process what we are doing. Can, can you elaborate on on this statement you just made? This 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 idea that plant photosynthesis and animal needs to be dealt with. Can you? I'm sure some of the people we're talking to don't don't really know what you're talking about. So can yeah. You, can so you... that that has to do uh, with the use of fertilizer. So photosynthesis is very inefficient. Luckily, it's very inefficient because the solar energy that we receive uh, in just a couple of hours uh, on the on Earth actually corresponds to the energy needed to run uh, the whole uh, humankind for the whole year. So the amount of solar energy what we what the planet receives is huge. So imagine if uh, if photosynthesis was very efficient, you would need to uh, cut grass at your house every other hour. Mm-hmm. Luckily, it's not like that. We do know that possibly once a week is good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's one. And because it is quite an inefficient, turning um, uh, photons or light to, to calories, then you need a lot of land to, to uh, grow crops. So, uh, 
but still that's reasonably okay. Uh, but if you add animal, so you grow feed for animal, which is uh, again very inefficient. So a handful of percent from from the calories what you have uh, in the feed ends up on your plate as meat. Um, the land area what you need for one that one kilogram or pound of uh, beef is uh, just becomes very large. And if you can skip this plant and animal as as a food production concepts then you improve the efficiency significantly also you reduce a lot of uh, of water use you can uh, avoid irrigation uh, and the use of, of pesticides completely uh, and that's where the environmental uh, benefits come from interesting and w- one thing that i, I think uh, for what i've seen in, in sort of a, a similar space and i'm curious what your, what your thoughts of I, I have a sense of I probably know what your thoughts are, but I want to elaborate a little bit. When I talk to people about some of these types of technologies, they often sort of as- associate them with, with GMOs and then genetically modified organisms and these types of things because you're playing around with, with the bacteria. Um, I don't know, can you, can you enlighten people on, on sort of the differences and how these are not really the same types of technologies? And, and I would argue that this was actually technologies going in this direction are actually much, much safer than, than GMO technologies and they're not the same and they shouldn't be sort of conflated to each other. Yeah, what, what we are doing is something completely natural that what we produce, grow and harvest is, uh, we're bold to say that it's the most natural food you've, you've ever had um, because it's a completely non-modified organism and we're just using the, the diversity of, of life here. Uh, GMO is then a, it's a different issue. There are, you can also identify two categories. One is that do you eat something that is genetically modified and does it have some impact to you because of some unknown? But the second thing is um, that much of the GMO solutions, what I see now is, is um, like impossible burger. So in, in, in the food, there is something that is not genetically modified, but, but it has been produced with an organism that has been modified. So, uh, so heme is, is one of these. Uh, and um, if you go to milk proteins or, or egg, egg white proteins that you produce basically with fermentation technology with, with, through a modified uh, yeast typically, and then actually you don't eat the modified organism, if that is something, uh, if that's a concern, but you you then eat something that is completely identical than uh, what you're what you're eating today. So it depends. Uh, let's see how it turns uh, around. At least through GMO, uh, kind of a whole new spectrum of uh, of choices open. What you can uh, produce and how. Sure. I think jumping off from that, I, I think just something that I find really interesting of, of where I see trends kind of going is I think more and more and more applications, we're starting to sort of see sort of cells as a factory. Of, we're using different cells types to, to produce, not from the, cell, from the organisms themselves, but from some byproduct that they create to, to create all these other things. And I think historically, we only really did that in maybe the, the health sector. Um, and you know we derive different things from from certain things like penicillin or whatever. But now it seems like we're we're moving in many many different directions. And and and, then, and then 
don't know. Do, do you think? Do you think that's a a? Do you think that's a fair analogy? And b? Do you see that trend as well, of this sort of you know cell organism as a factory, by itself in and of itself of you know we have a cell but we really want the the byproducts or. Yeah, exactly. That's that's correct, and I, I agree, and I can see the trend, uh, and uh, I see this as an engineer and coming kind of a from a non biotech background. Um, I see it in a way that if you want to produce something that is very complex, like amino acids or similar, uh, then cell is quite convenient factory to make such complex molecule or molecules um, so thereby it's, it's, it's and why, why do you feel the cell is sort of ideally suited to, to do that for, for people no, I, I'm sure some of people are not no I mean if you, if you compare that you would make fuels which are very very simple uh, hydrocarbons even linear you know mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're like ladders you know mm-hmm. kind of very simple uh, but but uh, then um uh, food is completely different or 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 medicine and um, yeah it just seems that cell cell is good in uh, in, in doing that but what what about the cell makes it better than I don't know doing it in a lab or, or something well of course I mean I, I one alternative mm-hmm. is that there are some kind of catalytic surfaces that mm-hmm. induce some reaction uh, but I, I mean I, I guess the the um, the likelihood of compiling a complex molecule uh, just decreases by by every connection you make in a, in, mm. in in the molecule or, or by block by block. Uh, so therefore, uh, it just seems that it's, it's difficult to synthesize s- complex things. But of course, they can be in uh, in, in competition. With with conventional synthesis, sure. No, I think that makes it what as a different thing that I think is I don't know, I mean I think it's a little bit farther in the future, but I think it's also going to sort of converge with this tech. What what are your sort of thoughts around? I mean this is going a little bit farther, but but where I see sort of things going as well as a sort of three D printed food and sort of implementing some of these types of technologies into the let's call it the ink so to speak or 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 the processes. To be able to create the food in a, in a 3D printer, it's I don't know. Is that something you think about, or is, what, what, do, you, do you think uh, that that's eventually kind of where where this is going? Do, do, could you? I'm just let's get let's get hypothetical for a second. Could you imagine in I don't know five, ten, ten years time, uh, this solar foods ingredient becomes used as part of I don't know the ability to 3D print? A, sure, a, I mean, uh, sure, sure. I think they it's it's a. Uh, something that can come up mm-hmm. uh, but in, in the sense I, I see it as, as a diff, different uh, how to say topic or it, it's solving different problem mm-hmm. because I guess the um, 3D printing is a way to create the texture that you have mm-hmm. the mouth feeling or you create a mixture uh, that that is somehow somehow familiar or well perceived by by consumer, then 
what we are doing is completely different. We're trying to deal with the physics, how, how to get to the to those calories. So kind of a, that's a different issue. And why not? Uh, we we you know could be. Um, but where do you see those two sort of converging? That's sort of what I sort of foresee, kind of watching things play out. I'd imagine that those two things would sort of converge, in the sense of you know you're creating let's say the the nutritional value out of food, but there's also a a let's call it a sensory value of food. Yeah. Which what you're saying is, is something that 3D printing is more equipped to, to solve. And then those two things are going to have to... Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. I could, I could in, in a way, uh, what can happen is that, that the, for example, our product, when we make the, uh, the protein, it is actually cells, mm-hmm. whole cells. Uh, they're not 100% protein, but you mm. know if you dry it, it's similar to, to soy or al- dried algae you know, as a composition. So uh, I do see the opportunity that if 3D p- printing or similar is capable of creating uh, uh, on a kind of micro level structure that you can compile to become, for example, meaty structure mm-hmm. and you can end up to that from a powder, then that's kind of an area uh, where, where these uh, complement. Sure. Uh, I think we'll just see how we're... Okay. Just we're, I think we're running out of time for today, but I, I really like to... Uh, just tell people a little bit more, like, so I think on the last thing is sort of where, where are you guys today and what's sort of the next, I don't know, year, you know, short, short, midterm of, of the development of, of solar foods? Yeah, the past year we're founded or started a bit more than a year ago uh, in, uh, in March 2018. And... Uh, and uh, We've built a pilot plant. Meanwhile, we're capable of producing uh, our protein one kilogram per day. It's a full replica of the uh, future full-scale factory with all the unit processes. So that, that's something what we've achieved. Now the material is used uh, for generating the safety data uh, for, for novel food approval because we mm-hmm. need an approval of the European Union and FDA and so on globally uh, for to, to prove it is food. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, the next year we're going to design uh, what we call a demonstrator so it's about 100 times than what we have now it could be our go-to-market plant um, that we could introduce the first products although limited quantity but still uh, go to market with the production of uh, of this plant and once we are working around this project uh, then we wait for the novel food approvals to be to be finished and when the, once the demonstrator is finished we hope to have the uh, uh, permits and for this project uh, for the coming year, we are raising funds now, um, and after that, then we get uh, from the experience of the demonstrator, we have all the data uh, to design a full-scale factory, which could be, for example, around ten thousand tons um, of of single-cell uh, material per per year, uh, and beyond that, we can't uh, <laughs> really see at the moment. Sure. No, I, I mean, that's already quite exciting, but just to get a sense of from that timeline, you would, would potentially expect, let's say, the first, uh, let's say the ability to first buy a product would be... 2021? 2021, I was about to say 18 months, two years, something. Two years. Yeah, two years. Okay. Uh, so, so for everyone out there, uh, unfortunately, you can't get this today, uh, but uh, in about two years, this will... I guess be in some other product. It, it won't be by itself. Right. It'll be in yeah. something. Um, so keep a lookout for for something that 
has the solar food label. Uh, I want to thank Pasi uh, so much for sitting down with me uh, here in Helsinki. Uh, so hi everybody, uh, we're here in Helsinki, Finland for Arctic 15. We're doing a special Love the Problem podcast uh, with a bunch of different people who are passionate about different problems at this conference. I'm here with Gemma Minlun. Um, she's a journalist and doing a bunch of interesting things in the space. I'll let her go a little bit more about herself on her own, uh, but let's just jump into it. Uh, so Gemma, uh, tell us about yourself, tell us about your background. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll... Sure, thank you for having me. Um, well, my background is actually I studied maths, so I do actually come from uh, not a journalism background at all. Um, you don't write very many essays in a maths degree, it's just, just sums, to be honest, <laughs> in Greek letters. Um, I, I then went into investment banking for all of three months and realised that wasn't for me. Um, and then I ended up in the other um, relatively questionable industry of advertising. Um, and I was there originally just doing sort of um, managing projects and whatnot for American Express um, for a big advertising company called Ogilvy and realised that also wasn't for me. And what I was my, what I was really passionate about was the sort of emerging world of startups, technology. I was, you know, sort of wishing I was back in the sort of science world um, with my maths and my physics. Um, and I ended up getting brought into the corporate innovation team at Ogilvy. So I was essentially a startup scout um, for Ogilvy for about two years. Um, and my job was essentially, it was, it was an awesome job. Um, it was basically just go around the world, find amazing, interesting entrepreneurs, to try and bring into Ogilvy um, and Ogilvy's clients, which, you know, if you don't know, Ogilvy covers literally every industry on the planet. So it was basically just go find interesting startups um, and tell us about them. Um, so I, I was loving doing that. Um, I missed the science a little bit, so I started a podcast um, as well while I was there with my, with my co-host called Science Disrupt, which is basically about how do we do the process of science better, how do we publish better, how do we share science better, um, and how do we spin science at the lab better. So I was doing all that, and then I got made redundant in 2016. They shut the innovation team, very innovative move by the company. Mm. Um, and basically, I, I fell into journalism. Um, I, was, I didn't really know what I wanted to do after. I, was, I wasn't sure whether to stay in corporate innovation or to go back to university, maybe do a PhD or something like that. Um, but in the end, I, I thought I'd take on a few freelance jobs while I found my calling. And people were asking me to write for them because I'd done a little bit of sort of thought leadership when I was at Ogilvy. And got paid for a few articles and thought, oh, this, this is quite fun. Maybe I should, maybe I should do this. Um, so now I, I do, as, as you said, freelance journalism. Um, I also am a scout for VC in London, so still kind of dip my toes into the, the world of startups. I'm predominantly interested in deep tech. Um, and I do a lot of speaking and kind of general knowledge sharing around the world of um, innovation and deep tech. And, um, and I'm writing a book, almost finished writing. So it goes, comes out next year. And that's all about hype and science and tech and how do we critically think better. <laughs> so that's me. I, I feel like we're going to touch more on that in, in a second. But uh, let, let's touch, come back in a little bit mm. and touch on this bit. What made you decide to, to sort of start this podcast and start doing sort of journalism in, in, in the science space? So, I don't know, what, I don't know what, what kind of need did you see? In, in sure. The, well, I mean... What was the thought process behind that? I think, I mean, it's funny when you kind of trace it back, it all makes sense. But at the time, it was all very <laughs> random. Um, originally, it was, I was getting to do, asked to do a lot of speaking through Ogilvy because I was in an innovation team, young and female tech person. So a lot of conferences were like, you know, come do the keynotes, which was awesome. 
Um, but I didn't really want to speak about like innovation and advertising because I, I didn't personally find it very interesting. Um, so whenever I got asked to speak, I always said, "Oh, could I talk about science to this you know audience of creatives and planners and mm-hmm. advertising execs?" And because I'd done a few talks and I suppose I was all right at it, people started saying, "Oh yeah, okay, we kind of trust you. Just speak about what you want." So um, I I did a talk at Can Lion about why Euler's theorem is the most amazing theorem, for instance. And um. it's, so I don't know what Euler's theorem oh, is. Oh, is it? It's the second most. It was normally rated the second most beautiful or the first most beautiful mathematical theorem. Pythagoras is the other one, which I'm, I'm assuming yes, you probably know. I do know Pythagoras. Euler's theorem is e. Wait, one other question. Okay. What makes a mathematical theorem beautiful? Like, like, oh <laughs> God, here we go. This podcast is going on for hours. No, I'm telling you. Okay, so that was what my talk was about. Before I tell you what it is, the reason okay. I was doing the talk was it was a room full of creatives who don't okay. normally care about maths and science. And I, the, what I'd been asked to speak about was who owns the future, the creatives or the coders? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make the point that it was actually neither of whom sure. owns the future. It was people who could appreciate the beauty of maths because you don't need to be a mathematician to appreciate the beauty of maths. So that, that, was, sure. my, that was my thesis. But anyway... Um, okay, so Euler's theorem is e to the power of i times pi all plus one equals zero. So um, it's hard; it's easier to see out loud, but e is in the um, two point seven one eight. Yeah. The kind of um, i imaginary number. Yeah. Pi three point one four. I know that's a lot of decimal places. It's kind of my thing. Um, all plus one equals zero, and the the reason that I find this equation beautiful is and why I think a lot of mathematicians find this equation beautiful and same with Pythagoras is not because of what it actually does sort of as a mathematical tool I mean it defines I think it's like the equation of a circle in the imaginary plane or something like that um, but what's beautiful about it is the fact that you have five numbers together in an equation the only sort of tools you're using in this equation is to the power of so the exponential um, and plus and multiply. Those are you're only using those three um, tools. You're using e, which is a, a irrational number. I, which doesn't exist, is imaginary. Pi, another irrational number. One, which is singular, and zero, which is nothing. And somehow, the power of the universe. All of those come together and make sense. The proof yeah. is beautiful as well. So, um, yeah, I, I, I've. I really wanted to get that across to people who worked in advertising because there a lot of them identify as are artists mm. but don't always see the beauty in science and technology. Um, and I mean, my maths degree, I didn't do applied maths, I did pure maths. So I was, you know, right in there with proof and philosophy and kind of the, the more sort of, I would say, the more beautiful side of maths as opposed to kind of trying to solve equations. Um, and I always wanted to kind of communicate that. So um. I did, I did a lot of that in the sort of advertising world and then I got uh, got to do a talk at South by Southwest, I think that was in 2016, and um, I did a, the talk was, um, what was it called? I can't remember the name of it, it was something like um, like how to make science sexy or something like that, because I was really passionate about how do we kind of communicate science better, make people more interested in it, but also how do we how do we make science more like tech in the sense of, you know, we have this, I was saying, you know, we're here at South Pacific West, there's 70,000 people have come all over the world for this, and that's just for the tech part of the conference. Yeah. Who's going to science conferences? Like, nobody's going to science conferences other than researchers. So I kind of want to make the point that what can academia learn from the, the world of startups and, you know, how can we make heroes of scientists and, and all that, and how can we make it more efficient, all those sorts so of things. So just, just jumping off that point, like... 
what what were the key takeaways? What 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 could scientists learn and, and have a better? I mean, I mean, even just getting the word out as to what you're actually doing. I mean, it's a difficult one because in science, when it comes to research that's being done, researchers tend to not want to. I mean, as I'm sure you know with your biochem mm-hmm. background, researchers tend not to want to overhype what they're doing. Mm-hmm. The message tends to get lost in caveats. I find. Um, which is good in some sense because you don't want to say, okay, we've done this study on three mice and this thing happened and it is really great in terms of science, but you don't want you know the Daily Mail coming and being like, we've cured cancer because we gave three mice some like Wensleydale cheese and, and that's the, the answer or whatever. Um, but equally, I do think that the beauty in science gets lost because of the kind of holding back of communication and also sometimes just the laziness in communication Mm -hmm. like you know a lot of people say oh some of this science is just hard and it isn't interesting and it you know it's it's only interesting for those in the field and I'm like well no it's not if you take a step back and take the time to explain why this particular phenomena is impactful or important if you lay the groundwork as to why something is really hard for instance there's beauty in just being able to overcome something that's hard it doesn't have to you know, this kind of obsession we have of like, what's the impact on the human? It's like, sometimes there isn't an impact on a human. Sometimes it's just an amazing phenomena that we've observed in the natural world. It doesn't need to, you know, give us extra energy or um, make us live longer or whatever for something too beautiful. And so I, th- I kind of felt quite passionately that the way we communicate science is quite poor. But also the way we do science is really inefficient. I mean, even simple things like I did a talk to university um, recently about agile um, mm-hmm. And they were like, what is this? And I was like, why are you not using Agile in like your lab? Yeah. It, like you're, you're all working, to, and you're working on code as well. Yeah. Like even using GitHub is a relatively new thing for a sure. lot of researchers. So, um, you know, a lot of researchers use paper lab notebooks. So if you lose them or there's a fire in your yeah. lab, the science goes with it. The way we publish science is horrifically inefficient. You have to pay the publisher and then you have to pay to access the science. Double payments to the publisher, nobody gets money out. Like... It, it's something uh, instead of this TEDx talk a couple of years ago when I was researching for it, I found out that 50% of all scientific papers are only ever read by the person who writes it and the person yeah. who publishes it and the peer reviewers. And how much knowledge is this being lost to the world? How much replication are we doing? How, how, stuff, how much stuff isn't replicated and therefore not reproducible? Like science as a system is quite inefficient and quite old school. It's not very digitally enhanced. So the talk at South by Southwest was kind of trying to highlight all that stuff to the techie people in the room, the South by Southwest-esque people in the room, and not just go, you know, it's not about, ha-ha, look at science, it's so inefficient. It was, could you guys build some digital tools for us, please? And, you know, can you come help and work together and all this sort of thing? So that that talk was impactful. I got really good feedback from it. Everyone was coming up to me at the end being like, so, like, do you have a company or do you have a blog? And I'm like, no, I just work for this advertising company and I'm kind of just interested. And they were like, oh. So I came back to London and I spoke to my partner and, was, you know, he was like, okay, why don't we start a podcast and actually dig into the stuff? So we, we interview people who are building these digital tools or are trying to change science and um, instead of moaning about to actually see what, what the solutions are. So that that was that was where the... the this sort of inspiration came for for science disrupt, um, and then as I say, when I left Ogilvy, I mean, the I suppose the big thing for me is I didn't. There was a part of me that really didn't want to work, um, just for one company doing one thing. I was kind of like, look at all this opportunity out here. I'm well connected. I know stuff. Like, how can I 
make the most of that as opposed to just going and being in corporate innovation for one company and being limited by that. So, um, yeah, I suppose it's sort of half communication skills, half my ability to kind of join the dots um, and uh, a network that I just was like, I think the only thing for it is to write about this and somehow just exist in the ecosystem as a kind of floating body, which is, I suppose is what I am. Interesting. I'm, I'm really curious. Uh, I have sort of this working hypothesis right now from, from, from the deep science, and I, I, I'd like to run it by you based on some of the things we're talking about. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with, with Gary, Gary Vee and, and uh, yes. his content model yes. and so on and so forth. I believe there's there's a huge opportunity right now, and it's essentially sort of a, a blue ocean for kind of deep tech companies to to use sort of a Gary V content model and document all the science that they're doing. Oh uh, yes, and, and get it out there on a regular basis, and and kind of what you were saying before of of this mentality of oh the stuff that they're doing on a day to day is not valuable, but but I'm sort of thinking, and my background's more in biochemistry. Of it's crazy to me that if you look at like a standard biotech pharma company they only start providing value to the market at like year 10. Mm. It takes them 10 years to develop mm. and, and they only start giving things to the market that is valuable in year 10. But but there's all these things that they're doing along the way that if they actually just recorded them mm. and, and distributed them would be valuable even though they don't kind of realize it. Uh, I don't know, I'd be really curious because I feel like it somewhat fits mm. into what, what you're thinking yes, and, and, no. and, and, and is very parallel. It kind of sounds a bit like, I mean... If tech transfer was efficient worldwide, which it's not, if it was, <laughs> if it but was, hold on, for wanna, companies. <laughs> but hold on, do you, do, you, do you believe that that's ever going to be particularly efficient? Um, like, like I, I kind of think that it's to some extent, right, with with the system that that's designed to support, like, I don't ever see that being remotely efficient. No, mm. but I, I think you have to, it's the same sort of thing of, I mean, not, I, I hate using Uber as the, the, um, the model but I can always never think of another one but if you think about when Uber came into the market it's they didn't just sort of incrementally make booking taxis easier they completely changed the system by which it happened yeah. um, and I think that's what needs to happen sure. with science as a whole with science yeah. publishing as a whole um, with tech transfer as a whole with many of the things in science we're not a lot of time we're not rethinking we're trying to build digital products and you know we're sort of putting a band-aid on a gaping wound um, with I mean with tech transfer I think I mean there's there's various different things to think about I was speaking to a guy I've awkwardly forgotten his name which is such a shame but anyway he's not published anything about it yet so it's fine um, but um, I was speaking to a guy recently about IP and how could we make the process of, of kind of because a lot of companies, particularly if you've got platform technology, right? So sure. say you've got some kind of molecule that can be used for various different um, expressions for drugs, right? You'll focus on one, probably the one that's easiest to get through regulation sure. first, maybe focus on like an orphan drug, get it regu- get it through regulation, get out to market, and then you come back and then you like point it in a different direction, maybe towards something big like heart disease or something like that. Um, which makes sense, particularly from a um, making profit perspective. But as you say, yeah, it takes years upon years to even get to that first expression, then never mind all the other ones. And his argument was, how could we create almost like a, not an IP library, but like a, I suppose a marketplace for IP. So everyone kind of puts up, these are all things we have. And then it's a, basically a way of allowing licensing to happen at sort of scale. And we were talking about it. I was like, well, technically that is kind of what tech transfers supposed to do they're supposed to go out you to market and say these are all the things we have who would like them um but then the problem is is you're maybe not got the context all uh, you've not got the right contacts all different pharma companies or maybe it could be a different kind of company that could use it that you've not thought about or so on and so forth and you're kind of limited by 
people power and how many people actually work for tech transfer. So I think that there's, I agree that there's like a humongous opportunity opportunity as to, even just from an IP perspective, like how do you get out the stuff that you're working on? But also even just terms of like, if you look at pharma companies and um, I mean, this is on a slightly bigger scale, but like results of trials so that folk are not just doing the same thing over and over again. Um, or even just like, you know, false, um, false uh, negative results. You know, how do we get so people are not just replicating the same stuff over and over again? I think a lot of the problems that we have in academia around making it more efficient, I agree, or I, I would say it's the same when it comes to companies, but then the problem is, is companies are not really thinking about it in the sense of knowledge sharing or thinking about it as how can we as quickly as possible get to the point that we can create some kind of monetary value of what we have and sell it somehow. So I don't know what the answer is, but I think for me, it's, it's the approach of how do we get science out of the lab, whether that's a university or a company, needs some serious rethinking, but I don't know who, who that's going to be. Is that a private company that's going to do that? Is that a government that's going to weigh in? Is it a company that's just going to decide they're going to start investing a load of time in sharing their stuff better? And, I mean, you mentioned Garvey, like, how do they monetize it in a way that makes sense? Like, that's, like, a whole other venture you'd have to create, right, on top of your actual day-to-day business. So then the question is, like, who does it? I mean, it? I don't... I, th- I, I don't know. At least the way that I think, and I think one of the things that's interesting about that, especially for scientists, is realistically the amount of extra work that you would need to do is relatively minimal. If, if you're documenting... Yeah. If you're documenting what you're doing and not trying to create new things. Right. Fair yeah. enough. So, so if but then that's the same argument for academia, right? Like, quite, I mean, have you heard of Real Journal? No. Um, so they are, I think they're based in Cambridge or maybe Oxford. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, uh, sorry for your listening, pal. Um, and um, <laughs> basically, so Rio Journal is really interesting. They, uh, I think R, what does R stand for? It's R-I-O. It's like, oh, I'm not going to remember. Something insights. Oh, I'm, that's so bad. I've forgotten. You can cut all that out. Me mumbling. So Rio <laughs> Journal is basically um, a journal. As open, I think it's open, um, completely open. But you publish like all of the stuff. So you publish like your grant application, your mm-hmm. initial data, okay. like every your your like you publish as you go. So you publish like your notes, everything, yeah. and then your like preprint, and then your actual paper. And so people can kind of tap into the entire journey of your research. I don't know how many people use Real Journal. It's a pretty new idea, but um, I think a lot of you. Know, whenever I speak to scientists who are not sort of bought into the idea of open science and not bought into open data, I mean, you've got loads of companies like Fixture, for instance, that allow for that. A lot of them say it's just an extra burden of, you know, at the end of the day, we're just trying to get to the point that we have enough data that we can publish a paper and then we can, you know, but, but so on and so forth. As just a counter, and I know we're just kind of playing around with this, mm. wouldn't it be so much easier to do all those things if you're documenting everything you're doing along the way? Right, but that's a, behavior, have... that's a behavior shift though, right? That's, sure. I think that's, and, and this is, whenever I have any discussion with people about, um, someone to this about how do, we, how do we change science, it always comes back to culture. Like, always. It's never about money or, like, availability of tech products or whatever, because those are short-term problems that you can find solutions to. Sure. A lot of time the problem is incentive structures and culture. Sure. Right? And, and maybe it's different. Maybe that's different for biotechs and for, like, actual companies, right? But in terms of academia, you think about the incentive structures around trying to get tenure by publishing in high, you know, high-impact factor journals like Elsevier and whatnot. If, if that's what is a measure of your worth as a scientist, the system is not going to change. Sure. 
So I think it's it's much more about how, like, trying to encourage that behaviour change and trying to encourage that incentive shift. That's that's not an easy thing to do. I, I agree with you, but I, I do also, I don't know, and, and this is just me, and I think this is for mm. me on the entrepreneurial background, I think there's the opportunity mm. that I think the first scientist who really takes advantage of these digital tools and starts to document what they're doing and put it out there is going to completely clean up. And I, 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 I well, because, because I think, yeah. for, for example, because I think, at least the way that I see it, and again, coming back to, to someone who I am following a lot of you're what you're saying is it's it, you then build up this sort of personal brand mm-hmm. and through the personal branding then all of a sudden that you become known as the scientist that does X mm-hmm. and then everyone on the planet is going to come to you mm-hmm. that that wants something connected to X whatever, whatever like I cancer. agree I completely so, agree with you in that and, respect and while let's say maybe that may or may not lead to let's say extra papers mm-hmm. what it will almost definitely lead to is extra money um, extra collaborations, sure, like, sure, like all these sure. other things, which, which is honestly, at least what, what I'm seeing of, of academia is, is I see academia going more and more in that direction Absolutely. Of, of these sort of public, uh, sort public, of public personas. Private, yeah. Uh, public personas, but I was also saying uh, public private partnerships oh, and yes. collaborations of, of, they need to have these, these, you know, collaborations with industry to be able to, mm. to run their lab and, and have enough money to move well, forward. Well, and also, I mean, if you look at it, you know, a lot of younger scientists are going and becoming entrepreneurs mm. as well because they're dissatisfied. I mean, <laughs> some people are dissatisfied. Other people want to be entrepreneurs, fair enough. But if you think about it, it's something insane. I can't remember where the stat's from, so I'm doing a very non-journalistic thing and just mm. saying a random stat. But it was something about, it's like 80% of people who do PhDs don't stay in academia. So it's like the alternative career is to stay in academia after doing a PhD, which is mm. mental. You train up these people you know four years or, or in the US even yeah. longer um, to essentially it's your training to become a scientist and then only 20% are retained in academia and now you've got another op- you've got another option nowadays where you know we're, you're clearly seeing this too this sort of growth in deep tech where there's an option beyond you know go be a quantum investment yeah. bank or go you know work for a consultant or go work for a pharma company there's an option where you can spin out research or or you know join a scheme like entrepreneur first or deep science ventures where you don't even need ip you can just go as talent and i think that shift might help with what, what you said before about this idea of building persona but i think where then the work needs to be done is how do you sort of start from a bottom-up approach? How do you get the scientists who are coming in as PhDs and going, frankly, don't listen to your PI, take the time and go and do public engagement stuff and go speak to go to conferences, speak to people, try and make these partnerships because at the, at the moment it's not encouraged at a junior level. Yeah. It, what's encouraged is to play the game of academia, which again comes back to this incentive structure and publishing. So... I think it's until we kind of get to that point because I mean, there are, I mean, there's many scientists out there who publish their work really openly. Who are, I mean, particularly if you into like the AI field and the physics sure. field because of the archive, right? But from a bio and chem perspective, it's it's very hard to do, and it's also very very hard to go against your PI. Most PIs don't, not most. A lot of PIs don't want you to publish anything. I had my my partner. He um he did a PhD in computational biology and he he was insistent that they would be putting it on bioarchive. He wanted to put preprints up. He wanted to publish openly. In the end, all he could do was convince his PI to pay for open publishing at a traditional publisher, which is good that it's still open. But the fact that and his argument wasn't even I don't want to do it open because of being scooped. His argument was 
I don't think you're going to stay on your PhD if we do a preprint because you're going to be done and you're just going to leave. So there's like all this mm. weird like s- cultural stuff around where you publish, when you publish, what kind of profile you have as a scientist. There's huge competition amongst that. And not every single group, but I do feel that it has to come from that low level, like how do you empower and encourage younger entry-level PhDs, postdocs to sort of be the personality themselves because they mm. they see their PIs as their lab heads as the personality is not them. Sure. Hey, what are let's let's jump off that point. What would you suggest? I mean, mm. it, not not that we're solving any of this here, but like, what steps would you take? My my personal, I mean, what I was saying before is is I mean, everyone has a video production studio in their pocket. Yeah. Yeah. So so start getting it out there, but but I mean, what are some of the things that you would Gosh. think should? I mean, I would, I would, I mean, from my own experience, I would go, I, I would say go to conferences that are not your traditional science conferences, but the poster competitions. One, I'll go to tech conferences, go to, go to governmental sort of things, go to things that are organised by the UN, go to, you know, pick, get involved with the World Economic Forum, like all these sort of organisations. They're not perfect, but they open up doors and networks that you're, frankly, not going to get until you're a really senior scientist. So, for instance, um, Hello Tomorrow, I don't know if you know the conference yeah. in Paris. Yeah, so um, we have a lot of love for them. Um, we, so Science Disrupt, we took four, it was four people. Um, we brought them along as our journalists, um, gave them press passes and had them cover the conference for us. I was hosting the main stage, so I couldn't do any coverage. Mm-hmm. So we were like, I mean, to be honest, it was a short-term problem. Just mm-hmm. we need some people to help us cover, cover this conference. But then actually... Um, I think it was three of the people that we had in the end were PhDs um, and they'd never been to a conference outside of their really specific kind mm. of um, remit and we said look we'll um, we'll get your you know your tickets covered obviously I think we paid all their expenses when they were there they just had to pay their travel and their, um, and their hotel we paid for all their food and all that jazz and um, we said look come to this conference um, you're probably going to have to take holiday because I doubt your PI is going to give you the you know the conference budget for yeah. it but just come it's really good it's only in Paris it's not far from London yeah. and they came and we took them out for dinner on the last night to sort of you know say thanks and all that jazz for it because they did really good coverage and you should have seen them like I was actually really shocked at it. they were all just like oh my god I didn't even realise this world was here I didn't even know this existed this startups and companies doing real science having conversations at, you know, at a conference that I would be having in the lab anyway. It's not dumbed down. It's not any different. It's just in a different setting. I mean, you know what Hello Tomorrow is like? The production value is yeah. insane. It's yeah. really fun. It's You're really encouraged to go talk to random people. So I, I would say the first thing is to try and find meetups or conferences or events or whatever in your city, outside your city, where it's not just scientists where there's startups there where there's investors there where there's government people or even a cause like I mean as I mentioned the WEF I'm one of their global shapers if you join global shapers in your city there's so much opportunity there as well um, and it's for me it's just about how do you how do you make a sort of it goes back to exactly what you said a sort of personal brand for yourself but also kind of working out what it is that you really want to focus on and not just the question that your lab is on like how does it feed into other things what do you want to do next and really, for me, that comes from network. It comes from who you meet, what sort of conversations you have. You know, go to Hello Tomorrow and you see one talk about something in agriculture and the neurons fire in your brain and you go, oh my God, the thing I'm doing could help them and I didn't yeah. even know, you know. And 
that isn't going to come from sitting at your lab bench googling on your breaks like it's only going to come from going out and speaking to people um i would say that's the main thing and then i don't know tweet it's probably the other one <laughs> tweet <laughs> just tweet <laughs> you tweet. can call it whatever you want i was just i was just seeing how how long we're we've been going so it's, it's all good you just tweet. You're, I'm not yeah. a big. I'm not a big Twitter person, so or almost well, at all. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, as a as a writer, you kind of have to be on Twitter. Sure. Um, I mean, particularly if you're trying to pitch like an editor who's never heard of you before. Like, yes, you send all your articles, but they're probably also going to look at like Google your name and see if you have that many followers. Like, yeah. it's kind of a mark of, um, sure. your thought leadership, I suppose. But I don't know. I, 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 a lot of my opportunities come on Twitter. I find yeah. out about a lot of things on Twitter. If you're quite good at curating your feed. Also newsletters. That's I get most of my news and like notifications yeah. about events mainly through newsletters or Twitter. That's how I get most of my information. Interesting. I mean, my mind's also through network. Usually not Twitter, but but I, I'm I'm at I'm here because of networking. And, and, yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, Actually, that's exactly the same as me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, there was someone my, I met through LinkedIn uh, about something else, and then they were like, "You should go to that conference in Finland." I was like, "All right." Uh, my 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 actual normally I have my my partner here James, uh, but. With this setup where we're kind of doing it separately, he knows what the the head organizer and was like, oh, we should get you to this and da da da. And I was like, okay, right, sure. So right. And they're like, yeah, hey, come speak. And I was like, great. Exactly. And it's the it's best a- way to supercharge your career, especially when you're younger. Like I'm only I'm only twenty seven, and for me, like, not only twenty seven. I mean, I, I don't think of it as young, but I guess it probably is young. But um, you know, I, I the opportunities that I've been offered in the relatively short career I've had have predominantly come from people who I've met at conferences or, you know, just, I don't know, being the sort of person that jumps at opportunities, applies for random things and kind of, and, you know, as a scientist, I think the sort of scientists that I know tend to be quite self-deprecating and quite kind of like, you know, because your job as a scientist is to just continually be wrong, right? You kept like trying things and being told you're wrong. Um, and I think sometimes scientists maybe underestimate how respected they are outside the lab and how much other people want their opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think scientists tend to think that I, I'm only an expert on this tiny thing I'm researching. And I'm like, well, that's true, but your way of thinking is very sought after. Your mm. you know process of how you question things, and I mean, if, if, mm. you, if you follow the scientific process properly, sure. the kind of no assumptions, like all that sort of thing, like businesses and governments have gone as well as really, really value that form of thinking. I, I, think, it's, I think it's really interesting, because I don't know, one thing that occurred to me really early, and especially in kind of what you're talking about, especially with scientists, is I think experts are always looked at highly and are always valuable. Mm. And I think people will forget, no matter how, let's say, niche you get, mm. As long as you can start to understand of like what is the expertise of this, how does this apply, and and how does this relate to other things, right? Then all of a sudden, I mean, depending on how far you get, you'll be quite literally probably a couple of the top hundred people in the world. Yeah. In in a specific subject, like yeah. you are one of the, the, the by far, if you have a PhD, you are probably top hundred in the world. Yes. On whatever topic that is, um, I mean. That's for me. That's kind of a crazy. If you, I'm, I'm, a statistics per, yeah. I'm a statistics person. Yeah. I just like a hundred out of you know the billions of people. I'm like you're the top yeah. hundred in the world. You know that's point whatever. That's got to be value it, for something. And and, and and I think also as well, you have got to remember that you know again, this is coming from what what my partner does, PhD, and, and the other sort of science I know that you know at a scientific conference where you get up to present your ideas, or even at just a lab meeting, or even mm-hmm. just a conversation with PI. When you're in that sort of academic context, your ideas get torn apart. 
right? Mm-hmm. And it's not a very nice experience, particularly particularly for people who hate public speaking. <laughs> so sure. it's it's not it's not a great thing. But if you go to a tech conference or a business conference, that is not the same. It's no. not the same vibe. It's and this is what I was always trying to convince my partner of, of like, you know, because he really, really hates public speaking. And I, yeah. I put a lot of that down. A, he just hates doing it. But B, I put a lot of it down to the fact that the, the vibe in academia is to for your ideas to be torn apart, no matter how robust they are. Um, it's just not the same in other contexts. And that doesn't mean, I mean, sometimes it means that the wrong messages get through and they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And that's where all my sort of, my book is all about hype and whatnot. But I do think there's value in the openness to other ideas and bringing in people from all different walks of life and different kind of um, backgrounds to trying to solve problems. And that is, I, I think, going right back to your question of like, how can science learn from tech? I think that's where the tech industry to an extent has really done very well in the last couple of years where it has said okay what do the psychologists think about this what do the anthropologists think about this what do the government people think about this what do the policy people think about this and when you go to tech conference it's not just a load of software developers up on stage being like and this is my code yeah. it's multiple people from multiple different um, companies and backgrounds and organizations feeding into normally the same sort of topics i mean look at ai for instance sure. it's all so it, it, I think that's where if that kind of understanding can be translated to younger scientists, they will see their place so much easier than if they're never exposed to that kind of vibe and they're only exposed to their ideas being torn apart by their PI. Interesting. No, I I think that's really interesting. I think the other thing, uh, I'm not just coming from that and coming from from the different direction. I think coming from like what you said about the tech space, what do they think about it? What do they think about it? What I tend to find more and more when I, as I deal with scientists who are thinking about being the entrepreneur route is really pushing sort of some, some of the design thinking mm. theories and, and mm. getting those into their process and just being like, hey, like, you've done all this great tech stuff, but like, let's, let's put a design thinking around this so we can get into the problems of the different stakeholders and getting them all involved. And I, 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 it almost, to some extent, it almost blows, blows my mind, especially as, at least what I'm seeing I think science, I mean, you, you said before, you know, that there is a natural beauty in the science, but I also think it's becoming harder and harder to do it without having it be applicable on some, yes, yeah. on some level. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think with that, uh, I don't know, it, we're talking about more of these design approaches. If you want to be applicable, then you, you need to start to integrate these types of values. Yeah, well, solution first, yeah. for instance. I mean, I think that's... Um, that was actually the first article I published for Forbes last mm-hmm. year around um, science startups was... Um, if you want to start a science startup, find a problem, not a solution. Yeah. And, you know, it's in the tech world, that's a really obvious thing. Yeah. You know, we hear, we've been hearing about design thinking for years, but I think that, and this again comes back to tech transfer, you know, you found a molecule and then tech transfer goes, okay, what pharma company can we sort of point at and how can we sort of position it? Um, as opposed to taking a step back and what kind of problems are there in the world that we'd kind of like to, to solve. And, it's a difficult one because science and the way it's funded tends to be relatively incremental. So it's kind of like, we've done this thing with this protein, so now we're going to do it with this other protein that's kind of similar and follow the same steps, which is certainly not a solution-based approach. But um, I do think that's where some of the interesting um, accelerators and opportunities and so on and so forth that are for these entrepreneurial scientists that are popping up, like, as I mentioned earlier, Entrepreneur First and Deep Science Ventures, where they say... We're looking for scientists who have an interest in, you know, precision medicine or um, I don't know, 
different forms of cancer therapeutics or, or whatever. Um, and then bringing people in and saying, okay, based on your expertise, but also your broad understanding of the industry and looking at this problem that we know we have, how would you think about attacking it and then creating teams off the back of it? Um, I think there's an opportunity there to kind of take a different approach because um, in, in that sense it kind of feels half like research and half like business it's kind of somewhere in between you know you're because sure. there's, there's so much research that still has to happen in that respect how how sustainable it is as a business model I'm not entirely sure but that's <laughs> that's that's dependable mm-hmm. right and, and depends on how much people want to take that kind of risk but um I do think I mean I, I'm really optimistic about deep tech and science spin outs and all that sort of thing I do think that um this, for lack of a better word, the sort of Silicon Valley vibe and the approach to doing things is starting to leak into science. And there's lots of really great tools and digital products and all that that is being pointed at science to try and make it more efficient and make it more kind of translatable and so on and so forth. So I don't, you know, I don't want it to sound like I'm negative about it because I am quite optimistic. But again, I think it just comes back to, as you say, like a sort of educational piece around what does it take to actually try and make the world a better place. It's not just you know, going to lab and progressing on top of what's already been done by your lab, rather taking a step back and going, how how do you want to kind of look at this problem or look at this, um, I don't know, nagging point that came up in previous research or whatever, which might not be as sexy in terms of getting funding, but it's probably more useful in terms of actually, I don't know, changing things. <laughs> sure. I think we're going to stop on that. I think it's, it's, it's this has been really, really great. And I, I I think we should talk and potentially do this again in a, a long Great, form like we, we normally should. do. Uh, but, but thank you so much for sitting down. And, no worries. Uh, that's uh, our next person from here in Helsinki. Thank you, everybody. So, hi, everybody. Uh, this is Alex Froman here from Helsinki, Finland, uh, interviewing another sort of interesting startup, uh, I forgot, and I, I was talking to your CEO, what, what, what's your role in, in the company? Uh, so the company is playing... No, your role, own, your uh, role. I'm co-founder and uh, COO. Okay, so I'm with the COO of Plan Blue, uh, Hannah Brook. Yes? Okay, <laughs> That's okay. Um, and yeah, and let, let's jump right into this. Uh, so Hannah, can, before we get into sort of Plan Blue and what, what you guys are doing, can you give us a little bit of your background about yourself, how you got involved, your personal journey? Um, so yeah, uh, actually I have a scientific, scientific background, so um, I was uh, before a marine biologist and I was focusing on yeah, how humans uh, destroy <laughs> the ocean, so in particular about coral reefs and uh, how they degrade. And while I was uh, very... And, and what, what's it, just to let, let our people know, what, what are the sort of key ways they're destroying the oceans and coral reefs? Well, my focus was on pollution okay. mainly. Yeah, but broadly so, or just a specific type or. Um, yeah, it was uh, runoff, okay. so from the land uh, pollution, um, but of course uh, also a little bit of climate change and um, yeah, temperature rising and so on. Yeah. But anyways, continue, continue <laughs> on your. So yeah, um, what I did miss uh, during my research career was the, that uh, most of the information we need for like uh, changing things and uh, keeping our resources um, are already there. 
and I really felt that I would like to have some impact and uh, contribute to a change. So uh, yeah, that's uh, so in the uh, peak of my career, I actually <laughs> decided to uh, become an entrepreneur and uh, yeah, and uh, start the company. And now I'm really happy because uh, I think our uh, technology uh, can can be a game changer. And so you mentioned you did this because you want to create a change. What's the change that, that you want to, to create or, or, or drive? Well, I could see that we destroy resources and it's so inefficient. Like, if you, if you think about it, you can make maybe money for five years or something, but then you destroy resources for maybe people, poor people who are dependent on that. And um, yeah, you, if you do it more efficient uh, and uh, also more cost efficient, you can really help a sustainable industry longing for much uh, longer and uh, you will have much more value and much more uh, money coming also out of this resource. Gotcha. And how are you sort of, let's say, realizing this through through your company, what is your company actually doing to try to? <laughs> okay, yeah, maybe I should start with that. Yeah, no, 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 no. So, yeah, we have um, we have a completely new technology. We're a spin-off from the Max Planck Institute. They they already like worked on this technology uh, since 2010, and uh, we are getting it now in a fully fledged commercial product. And what it does. It's basically when you imagine uh, satellites, they, are, uh, they monitor the surface of the Earth already for decades, but there are no satellites in the water. Okay. So that's actually what we do. We have a technology where we can out, uh, standardize and automatically uh, um, to, uh, get data and also analyze it at the same time. Okay, so, so you're creating the satellites of the sea. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Yes, okay. so the, the technology is really uh, similar, actually. Yeah. And okay, so for, for people who, who don't really know, like what what are the let's say benefits of creating the satellites of the sea? Mm -hmm. uh, like like what, what what information can you get? How, how is that useful? Uh, what can people do with it? Um, I don't know. So first, we can um, like we really look into details. So for instance, for biodiversity, or also for underwater construction, how they do uh, how the corrosion is going on or for plastic waste. So um, there's very different um, industries interested. So that is underwater construction, underwater inspection, or um, algae are produced under the water um, for biofuel, um, aquaculture. There's all company uh, uh, sectors of uh, the market who are interested uh, to use our technology. So I'm kind of really just curious about this, just kind of thinking this through, you know, if we put a satellite in outer space, there's not really anything that would interact with it or, you know, just floating through space. But I, I would imagine that, you know, once you put it in the sea, that there are, you know, fish and, and, mm. and, and other living organisms that would potentially interact act with this and, and, you know, it could potentially either disrupt the ecosystem or, or destroy the satellite or, or destroy the, the data collector. How, how have you designed this kind of with that in mind or how do you, you know, pr prevent the, the things that are floating around the sea from interacting with your, your solution? 
so we actually have uh, two different uh, business models. So the first one is that actually a customer has a problem. So for instance, uh, a harbor gets built and they need to know um, where to put the harbor and then also when they uh, start building it has to be uh, um, the unita impact analysis so it has to be monitored before, during and after. Okay. Um, so this is like a typical um, monitoring job. Mm -hmm. So from, from, yeah, from this we, uh, we can get uh, um, uh, revenue, so our partners, they monitor for different customers. This is uh, like one thing, but in most of the cases we get the data back. And also we will, uh, that's the second uh, business uh, model, which we will uh, do a little uh, later in time. We go to hotspots and then we monitor there the area where we know already that a lot of people are interested. And in both cases, the data comes to us. This data is highly versatile and can have many uh, use cases. That means that you can resell it um, and also over time it increases in value. So we would also sell the data. So first, of course, the, I mean, 70% of our um, oceans, 70% uh, of our world is uh, ocean and 95% from this is unexplored, so it's a really big area. So the first thing would be to focus on those areas, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, possibly expand um, the, the areas. But it's not possible to just scan everything, like what you would imagine of if you think about satellites uh, in the in the air. Oh, that was a, a different question that I was sort of thinking about. Like, <laughs> Sorry. like no, 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 no. It, it, it's good because that means this is going in sort of naturally in this direction. Like, I was just sort of curious, like, how, this is just throw out numbers or guesses, like, how many of these things would you need to, like, properly monitor the ocean? Because the ocean is, like you said, it's, it's this huge, you know, 70% of the planet. We've only really explored, like, 95% of it. So, or, sorry, 95% is unexplored. Um, I don't know, to some extent, uh, I, I see the, the, I'm gonna keep making this analogy because that's what makes sense in my head. I, I see the, the pictures of the Earth and you're looking at the satellites outside the Earth and mm. it's, it's this huge ring mm. around, you know, outside the atmosphere. Would we need to like fill up the oceans with satellites to be able to monitor it correctly? Or, or is that something that, I mean, it just sounds like what you're doing now that doesn't quite make sense, but, but is, is, is that what you would need? Or it, <laughs> no, or? I regret already that I said unmonitored <laughs> Um, because it cannot be that it's, uh, it's always monitoring. Like uh, okay. one, what what is very important uh, to come back to the core is that we get as much as possible data. Even though if it's just parts, we can yeah. still uh, do a lot. Because right now, maybe I have to explain. Like if you monitor, you need at least two time points. So one is the reference point, and then you have to go back uh, again to another time point, and then okay. you can see effects. Okay. And at the moment, we have no standardized way to monitor. That means we cannot do any long-term studies because at the moment, it's done mainly manual. It's very cost-intensive and you need a lot of people and experts to doing that. And uh, therefore, we, this data uh, cannot be reused because it, it's kind of a little bit subjective. It's highly dependent on 
on the expert who's putting his brain into <laughs> into it. And of course, because it's so costly, you just do it to the level where you can answer your question. So therefore, okay. for instance, in the um, Caribbean, there's one long-term study done by a person who's now in pension and cannot dive anymore for 40 years. But okay. if you think about like um, big impacts like uh, effects of climate change or pollution, we simply cannot calculate it at the moment. Because what we need is data where we can use it over generations. Sure. So even if we would have some spots, it would be already really, really great. But the more data, the better, of course. But at least some which we can use over generation uh, would be already awesome. Interesting. I'm just wrapping my head around this and maybe rephrasing it a little bit. What it sounds like to me you're saying is we, we don't really, for the oceans, we don't really have this sort of baseline data from which we could then make changes on top of, because we sort of don't really know what, over time, sort of long-term of like, okay, this is kind of what we see over time, so we sort of know what the the flow or, or the the fluctuate the let's say normal fluctuations are for mm. us to then say that okay, you know normally it's in this range of I don't know pollution. Let's make changes so we can get the the range down or or so on and so forth because we're we don't really have that data. Is that yeah the kind of the right correctly? So we we actually know more about the mass surface <laughs> than we know about our oceans and. While we have some idea about the Earth's surface and the atmosphere, so for instance, for to uh, see how climate is developing, uh, we don't have that underwater. It's simply not possible to uh, do on a, uh, on a yeah to to see how it shift and change. That we have, of course, uh, punctual. We could see that there's uh, some dramatic change, and there's no doubt about this. But we cannot really look at the effects. And then if you don't have this timeline, you can also not predict how things are developing. That means also if you are thinking about resources, you cannot do the planning. What do I have to do to keep the resources that I can draw out of it without destroying it? We cannot, we cannot do this kind of things. That's why we need to have a standardized um, monitoring technology also in the ocean and we can really bring this solution I really believe so and, and I'm just sort of thinking about this so I mean I, I'm actually uh, let's say highly concerned about the oceans personally more so because I, I sort of feel like there's been a big push on, on other problems let's say like climate change and whatnot but I at least the way that I see it I, I think there's huge problems in the oceans that are not getting as much uh, awareness or attention as, as let's say a problem like climate change so it's kind of being ignored mm. while we're working on other things what, what would you see as um, I'm going to call it the, the lowest hanging fruit uh, you know which problem do you see just through understanding the data that could be solved the easiest mm. or, or, or what's sort of the first problem that could be attacked that's mm. going on in the oceans just, just by doing this monitoring and making some you know, of the things like uh, loss of coral reefs, mm. acidification, um, uh, when I found out about the, the garbage continent in, in, the, in the Pacific, like these, mm. what, what do you think sort of is the lowest hanging fruit of what, when we find out this data, we could really mm. make a difference qu qu quickest? Yeah, the nice thing on our data is that we can visualize it. So we can actually make uh, seafloor maps and we can color code it, for instance, in red and green, mm -hmm. like healthy, non-healthy, or um, plastic versus non-plastic and then you have the simplified maps and you can actually use it for raising public awareness. So what we are also planning is 
to when we build the database to show these maps that people can access it. And then it doesn't matter what kind of problem it is. Actually, we're working a lot now with uh, plastic waste detection because that's also a really huge uh, problem in the ocean. And you cannot have, we, again, you don't have any data about it. How, how great, uh, on a quick tangent, uh, how granular are you getting with the plastics data? Because I, I know, uh, at least from what I've been seeing, more and more people are really concerned about sort of the, the, the microplastics and, and, and getting sort of really, you know, small scale on that. Is that something that you guys can measure or not really? Or? Uh, yeah, if you go very close to the sediment, for instance, we could pick up plastics. But, are, yeah, but, we, but, but we like nanoscale plastics or like how small? Yeah, nanoscale uh, is something micro. you uh, don't see anymore with your eyes. So if yeah, you yeah. would need to have higher concentration of it. Okay. And of course, it needs to be also tested. Also with the sediment, like we, we have already run our first um, yeah, tests and they were quite nice. So now we have to see, um, but we can pick up uh, a different kind of waste already. Okay. And that's really important because also uh, it depends a little bit, for instance, what kind of plastic also release what kind of toxins and how fast they degrade. So this is like very valuable information. And also another thing is there, like once is that there's waste there, but sometimes they also become habitat. Or in, uh, when it's also um, like ghost nets or something, if they settle down. Uh, and get buried, sometimes it's better to leave them in there because if you rip them out, then you have like a cloud of toxins yeah. coming out. So our technology, because it uh, automatically detects it, but it can also automatically evaluate what is there. So um, it would be really great to like look at big areas and then mm -hmm. you would know where to get out the waste and where to better let it uh, be in. But would you be able to sort of, like what you said before with, with these nets, if, would you be able to get the, let's say, depth necessary to know, like, oh, if we remove this net because there's waste we don't want, let's say, under or whatever, we should leave that alone compared to something else? Can you get sort of, I don't know, some level of depth to make that type of analysis or not really? No, but you see it a little bit on okay. the growth and how the um, seabed is structured, which you could also pick up with our technology. And maybe I should explain also our uh, software is really the key. Uh, it's uh, like an intelligent software, so you train it, whatever it has to see or should see, to go through the, uh, this big data and pick it out. But then on the top of it, you could add another level and um, also learn them how to judge. Oh, okay. Are, are you doing that through almost, uh, with the idea of be to d develop those types of things in-house, or would you get like almost uh, API connections? No, uh, our engineers uh, are the magician. <laughs> <laughs> so they, uh, yeah, we of course try to keep it in-house because it's really valuable. Uh, no, but I'm, for but I'm saying if, if you have, let's say, new new things that you're you wanted to learn about, would yeah. you not have I don't know some other group that's interested about that coming in and in, in API it or something like that or not? That's not really something you're yeah. thinking. Yeah. So what we do is we lease out our technology to our partners and they serve their customers so they go okay. and monitor and they we call it library if you are teaching our mm -hmm. uh, software something you create a library of how you identify the seafloor and um, yeah and those libraries they remain with those partners so they in their competition that's like their um, yeah uh, 
that's part of the value of their company. So for instance, when you look for like if you have wind parks and you have pilots where you uh, check erosion or something and the know-how from the companies in their library, that's then uh, good for them to get the next customer that they use their library. So it's, okay. yeah. Right. Okay, so they're, they're building up sort of these, these massive data sets and, yes. and interesting. And uh, then it, it really depends. I mean, if an NGO is coming and we're working together with some, which I'm unfortunately not <laughs> okay to mention uh, <laughs> uh, officially, um, uh, they can uh, also create their libraries, for instance, for plastic waste. And, um, okay. uh, and then they have it for the data analysis. But the raw data stays always the same, so you mm. can do all kinds of things with the same data, so you can address plastic waste or some kind of pollution, or you can also make statements about coastal protection or something like with regard to like species growing there who are uh, very important to uh, help catch uh, hurricanes or something before they uh, land on the ocean, uh, on the mm -hmm. land, sorry. Sure, sure. okay, well, well, that sounds a bit like it's, it's very robust, it could be used by many different people in many different ways, in essence. Yes. Yeah, it's very universal what you can do with it. But for us, it's also we have a very strong ethic code. Mm -hmm. So we do not do anything to exploit the sea. So we um, have that also in our contracts that uh, the data and yeah. our technology cannot misuse, uh, cannot be misused. Okay. It, what, what are? I don't, I'm sure that would be a huge long conversation. But let's say, what are some of the things? That let's say you put into the contracts that you would feel like would be misuse and could potentially like what what are you sort of telling people oh no we don't want you doing X because yeah. we, we feel like it would be hurting the sea or misuse of it Can you yeah when you search for instance for more resources for oil or okay. gas <laughs> I okay. think this is like highly destructive uh, yeah. okay so so like exploration of resources as example yeah okay interesting. I think, uh, let, let's wrap that up there. I think uh, very, very interesting support. Thank you for, for taking the time to sit down to me here, yeah. here at R215 in, in Helsinki. And uh, I'll let you get back, back to the conference. And, and thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. Hi, everybody. Again, we're, we're here in Helsinki at R215. Uh, we're doing a special Love the Problem podcast uh, with a number of different great founders and, and entrepreneurs who are working with a lot of different problems. I, I'm here with uh, Maria Rotenska, I think. Did I say that correctly? Yes. M more, more, or <laughs> You're less. Like, more or less. It's fine. Uh, and then she's co-founder at Cura. And uh, let's just jump right in with her. Um, so Maria, can you tell us just a little bit about your background, sort of your journey, how you kind of got to where, where you are today? Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Alex. Appreciate it. So... I kind of like got involved in the tech ecosystem uh, around five years ago when I just really randomly took an internship position at the very first uh, kind of startup hub uh, based in Riga, Latvia, so the Baltic states. And, and the hub name was Tech Hub Riga and uh, I had to just do this kind of like internship and just be gone with it. Like three weeks uh, just for my university to sign papers in and so on. So, and they and kind of like I went for this uh, interview and they uh, accepted me 
and I did not know anything of tech or apps or software or so, hardware so what, or anything. What, what, what was your background sort of before um, I had worked in a couple of like kiosks, like random stuff you know, you know mm -hmm. students do, like mm -hmm. nothing much. Well, I had already like been uh, managing some uh, student organization platforms and so on, but I had no, I had zero clue of tech, like zero. Mm -hmm. And then I entered the scene and obviously had to do some work. <laughs> it didn't work out that well. And uh, yeah, and it, it kind of like, it immediately dragged me away. I was like, what is this? What is this world I had no clue about? And uh, at that point, I understood that tech is emerging, and this is the one industry I should be in future. And what, what were, let's say, the, the biggest, you know, things that you were like, wow, like, like this is where I want to, like, what were the, I don't know, attributes or characteristics that you said, no, this is, what about tech made you be like, no, this is where I want to be? Yeah, so I'm really, at that time of my life, and I still am uh, really driven by personalities and by inspiring people. So when I, uh, when I came on board with Tech Abriga, I kind of like uh, had all these mentors that been, uh, you know, the pioneers of the tech ecosystem, founders themselves, uh, founding first like tech entrepreneurial uh, companies out of Riga and so on, uh, with this drive of global vision. So I kind of like learned of their visions that we are able as a, as you know, small nation, small country to bring these global products to, to the market quite easily if we have a great idea and we have a good uh, kind of like ex execution processes made up. And of course, if we have a really nice network to kind of like launch pad from. So these, this was one of the main key points that got me in. Those were the people that I had the pleasure of uh, working with together when kind of like entering this whole scene. Gotcha, okay. Uh, and sorry, that was a little bit of a tangent. Come, come back into your story. So, so you got into the scene. Yeah. What did you? What was next, or what? Yeah. What, so I worked in, in uh, I worked in community building uh, for two years, and and that's where I uh, sort of like learned uh, everything. Uh, what's there to learn about how the tech ecosystems work like? Like, what are the main stakeholders involved in uh, in making sure that there are new companies growing out of a certain region? So I got a sense of how does uh, a community hub works? How does the investment uh, part kind of like? What kind of role does that play? How does the corporate situation uh, and the corporate leaders coming in what do they do and of course how what's a startup right mm -hmm. what's a startup and what's the startup's journey and and then well, after a while while consuming all this information about understanding how this world works I decided there there's a kind of like a new step for me to take because uh, at that time there was uh, an event um, really similar to Arctic 15 that's had that had already been happening for quite a bit in Latvia, it's a non-profit event, but at that time it was a really, really small meetup. So, mm -hmm. and everyone was like, oh, we should make this a thing and we should uh, kind of like bring more internationals, bring more smart money, uh, mm -hmm. have better startups join from the from the region in general, because it was, you know, it was a, it was a small meetup. And at that moment, I had already traveled around, uh, saw what other countries are doing in order to A, attract talent, B, position their city as a, as a tech competitive city in terms of like European market and I had al already understood uh, what does it make for uh, an ecosystem to actually um, build and make sure that we have this next entrepreneurial uh, cycle of you know new tech savvy people uh, mm -hmm. kind of like uh, turning their ideas into products so 
at that stage, I said to the guys who had kind of like founded this meetup mm -hmm. that I want to take it to the next level okay. and I want to build another organization which is uh, going to focus on international presence and okay. on uh, attracting talent and making sure that we have uh, kind of like common sense in uh, in like national nationwide uh, spread of why is it important for young people to come into tech and uh, like which ways should they go and so on and uh, and together with a couple of uh, Latvian veterans when it comes to exploring the kind of like inventing the ecosystem and so on and making sure the processes work we created another organization which was a non-profit one uh, which I led for three years and uh, from 300 uh, participants on, uh, on on yearly basis at TechChill we grew steadily uh, since that in just in three years, 2,000 participants from 48 countries, uh, team of 15, okay. uh, a non-profit venture. So that's that's what I was uh, doing, um, kind of like since the moment when I started to take this initiative. So I see this initiative taking as you know, okay, I'm gonna just jump right into it and see how this works out. And okay. uh, so. I'm really proud of the work we did back then and uh, it still continues. We have a new team, we have a new managing uh, team on board and uh, I'm really happy to see where we are leading next because I'm still on the board mm -hmm. side there but I kind of like after a while I understood that it's I had done everything what I wanted to do. Sure. I had positioned ourselves as a competitive market when it comes to tech. I had positioned also the startups and we, we made sure that government hears us sure. and uh, we were able to push through different kind of initiatives and so on but at that point at that point I was like okay wh what's next like what is my next big challenge and um, yeah and this is how I got into my current venture which is Kira and so can you tell us a little bit about Kira and, and what you got what you're doing there and, and the problem that's solving and yeah. wherever you want to start it's, it's... sure um, so Kira is a Kira is a a platform that is uh, mainly driven by a financial tool that okay. we are building and uh, what it does, its main purpose is to shift people behavior when it comes to incentivizing individuals and companies to do more sustainable actions on a daily basis. So in a nutshell, whenever someone, you for example Alex, yeah. whenever you produce a solar power or store one from the grid, we pay you for doing so. Whenever there is a decision making that you have to take and you take the public transportation instead of a car, we pay you for this action. So whenever there is some kind of uh, last mile thing for you to do, you decide to take the scooter instead of an Uber, mm -hmm. we pay you for doing so. So it's, it's we are building a platform that will uh, kind of make think twice for people when it comes to sustainable decision making. And, and the mechanism here is actually, you know, paying them with our uh, generated uh, kind of digital stable coin that is called Kira. And what do you, this is, this is actually something that, that I, I'm personally kind of interested in and in kind of actually for a, let's call it a hackathon style event, developed something just on an idea, something mm -hmm. very, very similar to what you're talking mm -hmm. about. So, I mean, what do you think is preventing people today mm -hmm. from taking the, these actions? I think there's just not enough incentives for them. Uh, people are lazy, like in general, everyone is lazy. Mm -hmm. And history has proved for over and over and over and over again that whenever there's someone subsidizing your actions, they can get you to act in a certain way. 
So for example, me or you, yeah. we, we kind of like, we did back then uh, a work, just a regular work. For example, I was a shop assistant. Mm -hmm. So I had my duties, I was getting paid for that. So I did my duties. You know, I uh, kind of like, you know, from, from point A to B, mm -hmm. it was well, well done and so on. So this, this, is the, this is the shift that I'm talking about. Like historically, subsidies is the only reason for the mass type of a humanity to actually do something in the way uh, someone else wants you to act. Otherwise, otherwise, the consciousness is just not enough. The moral background of people are, is not enough when it comes to changing their behavior and that's why it needs, it needs to be incentivized. If you look at a very uh, kind of a, uh, easy example to understand what, uh, what power powered the whole wind and solar industry, those were subsidies, mainly done by government. It would never ever took off without these subsidies coming in and actually like leading the way towards their success. So why not to put like kind of like take the same model that we have put on already existing sustainable models out there and just put on the persons themselves. So people who are actually, you know, the ones who are doing these actions on and, and kind of like doing the unsustainable uh, behavior on daily basis, why not to take the model and just put it on them? And this is us trying to make uh, a platform that is going to incentivize and subsidize um, sustainable behavior. And that's it. It's, it's really simple. But uh, the trigger here is whether we are able to give them enough incentives to persuade the, the behavior shift. So that's the big question. That's what we are trying to test out now. Okay, so, so right now you're trying to test, you know, what kind of incentives people need. But I'm really curious, I mean, I mean, you're, you're talking purely financial incentives, but isn't there, let's say, a large, for some of these things, social incentives or there's, I mean, incentives come in many, many different forms. Yeah. Why are you choosing to f focus on the, specifically the financial incentives mm -hmm. over the other types of incentives? Uh, you use the example of, of sort of the solar industry and, and the other renewable energy things, but I think there's, it's a little bit different, but, but I think we could say this is, often these incentives get used because generally it's hard to get money to, to fund investment in new infrastructure. This is very, very difficult. So you start to incentivize it so that money will start to, to flow in and so they, then you have enough money to actually build these types of things. Why do you need sort of, let's say, a, a similar type of investment into human behavior mm -hmm. to create, let's, case, let's call it the human behavior infrastructure to create these, these yeah. more, more sustainable so, lifestyles, let's call it. I feel like this is us uh, testing out uh, already proven methods. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned before, the history shows that the, in, in, when, it, when we come to financial incentives, it, it actually works. So people behave in a certain way. But, and, uh, and we are really not believers. And many, many studies show that it's not enough with social behavior. It's not enough with moral grounds mm -hmm. for people to to make them act in a sustainable way. And it's really it's like it's scientifically proven that people are just too lazy, and they're gonna, you know, most of them are gonna choose uh, unsustainable actions over sustainable ones, just because it's uh, it's easier. It's uh, you know they don't want to talk. They don't want to go into details. They just want to get done with this. And uh, what we are talking about. Of course, there are a lot of people who already act in a sustainable way, and uh, we will be more than happy to uh, to reward them for doing so 
And, uh, but what we really want to tackle is this, you know, a big percent of uh, population out there that doesn't, they don't think that way. And what we want them to do is to pers persuade these type of people to come on board with this financial incentive. Um, of course, uh, the platform that we are building, it's, uh, it's main, in the main core, there is going to be uh, a financial mechanism. But uh, as we grow, we see this platform uh, also, of course, you know, educating people. Why are you going for this uh, particular decision rather than, uh, you know, taking the, the other one, which is on, on the unsustainable kind of side. We see this as a, a sustainability mentor that will help you to understand uh, the fundamentals of your actions. And uh, kind of like, we will be this flow of information eventually. Interesting. Uh, coming back to sort of a, a different thing that I'm sort of curious about. For me, it sounds like for, for something like this to, to really work properly, you're, you're gonna need to have a lot of people having strong trust in the system, trust that, mm -hmm. that you know, um, a that that you know when they do something sustainable that, that it gets measured properly and so on and so yeah. forth and that their neighbor if doesn't have a way to, to cheat the system and mm -hmm. find a way to say mm -hmm. that they're doing sustainable mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. when they're not mm -hmm. I mean I don't know how let's say broad what you consider sustainable action is but how how, so are, we, how are you measuring all these things how are you getting this data how, how can you really yeah. check you know oh I know that you rode a bike today or whatever yeah. whatever whatever yeah. Yeah. So uh, everything what we do is based on uh, and inspired by the United Nations Sustainability Goals, uh, which we uh, all know is uh, 17 of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we, we want to kind of like uh, at the end of the day tackle all of them. But of course, uh, everyone knows and we are smart enough to realize that there are only a couple of sections uh, that we are able to measure. So exactly as you said, um, we are able to uh, ins uh, kind of reward someone only if we receive the data that this particular action has been done. So in the very beginning, we are starting with the energy and the mobility sectors because those are the ones that we can uh, measure uh, the best right now uh, from different type of technologies. So for example, with these energy companies, we are integrating uh, within their backend systems via APIs and this allows us to source in data of their customers. And uh, on top of this uh, source data, we are able to see which customer in which area has uh, been produced that that an X Y Z kilowatt hours. And on and based on that, we are able to issue them uh, the newly generated uh, kuros. So when we look at the mobility, we will be eventually able to tell just by the mapping out the GPS locations what kind of speed. Uh, and just by what kind of speed is this particular transportation taking, we'll be able to tell if our user is using uh, a scooter or they're biking or they're using a public transportation. So that these kind of technologies exist already out there. But in, uh, in the very first phase, when we are still in the pilot slash POC, which is the stage we are right now, we are mostly doing the APIs just to make sure that all the data is accurate, as, as accurate as possible, because this GPS location is, is an easier way for us to scale, but at the same time, it's not that accurate. But uh, mm. with time, technology obviously evolves, and uh, we know for sure that uh, next year around this time, the data we can source in from the GPS trackings is going to be uh, accurate, like super one. Doctor, and just because you said you mentioned that you're now kind of focused on energy and and mobility, let's say, what's the right question of this? Like, what percentage of 
sustain, I'm trying to form this question in my head as I, as I say it, but like what percentage of, let's say, sustainable action needs to happen in this space or, or you know, because there's a lot of other choices and, and decisions mm-hmm. people make, mm-hmm. but, but do you mm-hmm. see that this mm-hmm. is, I don't know, how, how big is this of, of the amount of decisions that a person is making in a day or a year or whatever? Well, basically this defines why climate change exists. So it's our behavior, and uh, we can argue that it's uh, about the companies, or you know, the mighty oil companies, or or the rest of the mighty uh, you know stakeholders out there. But at the end of the day, it's uh, it's it comes down to two things. So the first one is your behavior as an individual. It always matters. People tend to think that they're just too small to make a chance change, right? But when you look at like example right here, Greta from uh, from Sweden. She is 14 year old girl who kind of like, you know, burned the house down, like lit everything on fire to be for people to start uh, think about the climate change and its actions and uh, and everything around it. So people tend to think they're too small, and and when we come in and say to them that we're gonna do this tool that is gonna allow for everyone to contribute there and then they're like their eyes lit up oh wow so i'm gonna have this tool that's easy to measure and uh you're, you're gonna like you know chip me something on top of my uh kind of sustainable action Th- that's when they start to kind of like process it and actually think m- maybe i should go for the sustainable way so one thing is the people behavior in general and how we uh think of ourselves as, as someone who are just too small of making change, but the other huge portion of uh, of the whole humanity is of course the companies and its decision makers who are uh, constantly uh, behaving not in the right direction, just being pushed by, for example, shareholders. Um, and we see this uh, every day. There are so many uh, companies who needs to change, who needs to put all these. Uh, uh, all the systems on renewables uh, make their supply chain way sustainable than it is right now. And just because of the you know sh- shareholders and decision makers at the very top of it, they are not able to change and they keep on doing these kind of things. So this is uh, this is something that we are not able, like no one is able to kind of go to them and say, just stop it, just stop doing this. But the government should. But at the end of the day, there's not really an incentive. All the all the decision makers can do is just say to their shareholders, "Of course, we're going to do that." Because for shareholders, what is the most important thing is to get revenue, and um, so we will try to also tackle this uh, type of a uh, phase. Did I answer your question? Yeah, more or less. Kind yeah. of. Yeah, I feel like the, I, sometimes I go. No, it's okay. These things go go all over the places. It's perfectly yeah. fine. I just sort of thinking about this of, of okay, so you're financially incentivizing people towards more sustainable behavior uh, through essentially a, a, a currency or token and, and mm-hmm. doing that and mm-hmm. But ultimately, this this has to come from from some, somewhere from yeah. somewhere yeah. who so who's feeding into the system mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. and so we have this huge vision, and uh, it's not only a vision, but we have already started to work on that. So our digital uh, stable asset-backed coin is not called just for a fact as a stable asset-backed coin. So what we did with our financial mechanism was we created a system where there is a backup fund for the whole currency. You can t- uh, you can look at this backup fund as a kind of like regular uh, banking uh, fractional reserves fund. 
uh, where initially for all the humanity was gold. It was gold was backing yeah. the the whole ecosystem of banking. Um, and kind of what we want to do, we want to raise uh, money from uh, responsible investment funds that are currently around 23 trillions existing out there. And mostly these funds and these backers would come with a background of kind of like um, an interest in preventing climate change and, and, and preventing them losing money. So those would be reinsurers, insurance companies and sovereign funds. Because these type of actors are the ones who are actually paying for our beha behavior on a daily basis sure. when looking at disasters, at fires and, and everything that's happening to the world just because of our uh, you know inconsistent uh, behavior. So. And we have already started to talk with a couple of these kind of companies who see the who see the kind of like the goal of what we are trying to do and they have already run um, kind of like internal programs um, to for example reward people for, to walk more there was uh, this one particular case where Fitbit was uh, uh, cooperating with an insurance company um, just to kind of like test it out whether people get motivated by financial tools um, and if there is a correlation between between kind of like you know reducing their footprint and there was and that's why the world right now is is aware of what's happening it's just and it's the very like right time for us to come in and, and say that this is a, a kind of like global financial solution to to change behavior drastically Gotcha. Okay, but would it also? It seems like it's like a natural. You, you mentioned insurance companies as an obvious natural partner, but also to me, it would sound like governments and, and yes, and, yes, and, because and cities. And this is the next. Super yeah, interesting. this is the next kind of like phase. Um, first, we have to prove that this reduces your our footprint in general, and then we can go to large economies with this data and say that hey, this works implemented now <laughs> and uh, this is where we go to big corporations start to work with let's say Amazon or Alibaba or go to cities or, or governments and say that this is a financial scheme that is going to uh, save our world and um, and this is the point where Kiro gets uh, this initial value that we need uh, so as, as soon as we are approved by larger large economies I feel like we've made it. That's that's the point where we feel like we've made it just because Cura as a coin is being used for tax purposes. So mm -hmm. that's it. Tax purposes, Cura for that, and our, our job is done. And then it's a matter of time when we don't need any more Cura because the behavior has been shifted, you know? Sure. No, no, I think it's... Uh, on a topic, and I'll do like one last question. I think with any sort of cryptocurrency, it's it's as long as someone decides it's valuable then it's then it's successful to some extent if you believe it has yeah, value it's, it's, it, all, it's, it's like it's any, all about trust i yeah. mean uh, the the currencies wouldn't exist out there the the company registers wouldn't exist wouldn't exist if we wouldn't trust this trust. is a system we should move forward with um, and the same thing comes back to our uh, Kira currency. Um, we want to make the sustainable economy and we have to have a new actor coming in that's not kind of like so, uh, tied up with the existing currencies out there. It has to be kind of like a new hero that comes in and, and, and shifts the behavior itself. Cool. And I'll ask you one last question. I think that's about where we are in time. 
Uh, so let's say if I wanted to, to be paid in Cairo today, mm-hmm. could I, where would I need to be? Uh, where are yeah. you in, in this stage of things? So, uh, so we'll be launching our proof of concept in Germany uh, okay. on September. And uh, if you will be uh, able to connect with our partners or be c- customers of one of our partners, uh, all the partners will be listed on the website, curo.oi. So just head over there, leave your email, and as soon as the POC is launched and we are able to onboard uh, new users, uh, we'll, you, you'll get notified for that. Cool. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I'll let you get back to the conference, and I know you must be very busy as I am. And, and thank you all, and you hear another great story here at Arctic 15. Thank you, everybody. Fantastic. Well, it was great to hear from Alex and, and all these other people here from Arctic 15. I mean, it was a great event um, that we both thoroughly enjoyed. If you want for us to also come along to your event, uh, record some podcast, feel free to reach out in the comments. Um, other than that, we really strongly recommend Arctic 15. It's one of these events that is big enough where you can meet the people you need to, but also small and intimate enough to actually have the conversations that you need to have. Um, so we're big fans, both Alex and myself. Um, if you're in Stockholm in October, October 17th, 18th, it's Arctic 15's a special edition for Stockholm, I believe, um, with a special guest appearance from Gary V, who will be doing the keynote there. So don't miss out. I would suggest you go ahead and book your tickets um, tell them we sent you. Do 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 do